go ahead and open your Bible to John chapter 15. If you're going to use the Pew Bible there, it's 1643 is the page number. 1643. I'm going to read a couple, just a couple verses from a couple different spots. In the beginning part of John 15, Jesus talks about that he's the vine and we're the branches, that we have to be connected to him to accomplish anything. And then right after that, he talks about how if we do that, it's pretty likely the world, that is, those who don't believe and follow and trust Jesus, um, it's pretty likely they're not going to like us a good bit of the time. And you're going to have to get that and how those two relate to each other. Look at verse 5 in chapter 15. Jesus says, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. So the thing that your life is for, the fruit, so to speak, that we're meant to bear, for God, for the good of all people, and for our own purpose and significance, can only be born, made, be produced, if we're connected to the vine that is the living Jesus. Not just following his ethical teachings, but spiritually connected to him in a supernatural way. And apart from that, we cannot accomplish that for God's glory, for the good of all people, and for our own significance and what we're meant to be, okay? But then if you drop down just a few more verses, when he gets done talking about being connected to the vine, in verse 18, this is what he says. And this is, this is connected. It's the same teaching. He says this. He says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. And as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Jesus lays out this idea, and, this, and there's lots of other passages where you could put this together, but he lays out this basic idea that Christians who live in the world that really exists, where Jesus is the unseen but risen King and Lord over all things, and in a world in which the majority of human beings are not going to acknowledge that and live according to it. We are going to live between these two realities as a witness to one in the midst of the other. We're going to live connected to and for and with Jesus for his purposes, and yet we're going to live among a people whose good we live for, a good portion of whom a good portion of the time are going to actually hate us. And in the midst of that, he gives us a certain a certain designation, what he calls the church, and he gives us a set of practices of spiritual life that we're supposed to live out together so that we can be that, so that we can remain in him, and so that we can bear up under the fact that the very people we live to serve and love are going to hate us most of the time, and that's not going to make us bitter, it's not going to make us self-righteous, it's not going to make us timid, but we're going to be bold, we're going to be courageous, and we're going to live for their good no matter what. And that's really what Blueprint has been all about these last six weeks. The purpose of this has, was never that we would have some kind of experience during the fall where we did nice graphics. The whole point of this was that we would remember together and we would experience together a solidifying in what we're here to do as the church, how we live these spiritual practices together, and what we're here for all year. And to concentrate it in six weeks so that we could live it out over 46, right? 
Now, I, I know that even after these weeks, especially if, if you didn't get the book or weren't here for all of it or didn't read it or didn't find it persuasive, that you might still chafe under the idea of like, well, but why do, I mean, why do we have to do all that? I mean, well, can't we just believe the gospel or can't we just whatever? One of the reasons why sometimes we chafe under the idea of the spiritual practices of life God has called us to, the six things that we do together as a church, is, is partly because it is so easy for us to forget who we are. We are not floating brains, just sheer rationalities. We are not mere animals, just full of passions and instincts. And we're not angels. We're actually not good. <laughs> and when you recognize—see, if, we if we were good, we wouldn't have to repent. <laughs> we wouldn't have to believe the gospel. We could just worship the God who's there. That's it. We just naturally do that, like angels, right? And if we were disembodied rationalities, we wouldn't need disciplines— that disciplined our instincts and our physicality and our laziness and so on according to what, how we should behave and believe. And if we were mere animals, we wouldn't need truths to believe. We wouldn't need doctrine. We wouldn't need facts. We wouldn't need to study the scriptures. We wouldn't need to know the gospel. But we're not any of those things. We are created in God's image but in a sinful condition fully embodied and animalistic on that level because God wanted us to be physical. And that's how physical is, apparently, in his created world. And he has given us the gift of rationality and thought and clarity. And these three things coexist as humans, hopefully, if we believe in Jesus— Redeemed, regenerate humans, and he has given us a set of practices and a place to be in, a community to be involved in, and a part of, in which that is perfectly designed for that. And to the extent to which you believe that's what you are, I think you could be persuaded by Jesus that this is what you need. But if you don't believe that, if you're confused about what a human being is, which I would argue the majority of us are because our culture is really confused about what a human being is, then you're naturally not going to see these things as important. But if you do, then you will begin to see the importance of how we connect, grow, and serve. The things we've talked about over the last six weeks. The first one, connecting with God, that is, God is a person, not an idea. God has ideas as a person that are all right. But God is a person, and you are a person. However strange the relationship between us, if two persons relate, it's a relationship. He is the God who speaks and shows, and yet still is somehow hidden, and we exist in that. And so therefore, God has given us certain practices about how to connect with him. One is to have faith and trust him. Two is to express that faith publicly by being baptized and taking on his name to ourselves. Third is to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to continually accept together that we're all the same under this truth that Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification, and we can all belong to him, and that's all any of us can ever be and do, to set ourselves right with God. And he's called us to worship him, to both remember ourselves and express rightly to him what he's really like and what he's really worth— He's called us to read and meditate and think about his written word so we can understand him speaking to us. All of these things are practices under that we have to connect with God, right? We also talked about the fact that Jesus didn't even want to publicly talk about connecting with God without adding to that, that that means immediately that we would connect with others, right? We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And one of the ways we do that is by loving our neighbor as ourselves. Because you, you can't, it's very difficult to love God with your body, right? Without loving somebody else. You're physical, that's what you do. That's how love gets out. You've got to figure out how to serve and love other people. And the word neighbor, I think, is carefully chosen. Jesus could have said brother. He could have picked a group that you sub-selected, right? But he intentionally didn't. The beauty of the word neighbor is that the neighbor is random, the neighbor is simply the person you find yourself next to. You didn't subselect him. He's not a Facebook friend. He's not somebody who's in your social network shops where you like, does your thing. The person is as unlike you as randomization can create. And that is the person you're supposed to love because that is how love functions. And only when you love somebody you are, you did not pick, can you begin to think that you might be becoming a loving person like Jesus. Which is why the church ought to be a place where the only thing that aggregates us together is Jesus. People are different economic classes, different educations, different races, hopefully international in their background. The church really can and should be as diverse as humanity because what picks us is the gospel. And then you're stuck loving the person next to you. And that's really good for you. And when we do that, we'll begin to really connect with others and we'll be able to live out the purposes that we have. And if you only come to big church, it's really hard to do that. Except for when Greg tells you to sing to the person next to you, which the introverts just ignore. (laughs) Like me. The reason we have small groups is because Jesus gave us a dictate of loving our neighbors clearly, directly, meaningfully, and spiritually. And you just can't do that in a a room with 300 people in it. But if you only like the people you select, then you're probably not going to grow in love the way you need to. You actually almost need a randomization selection for who you are stuck loving. And as much as we try to help get people in small groups that they're like, sometimes it's the the people who get dumped in small groups they don't know anything about who have the greatest spiritual experience in them. And in the small groups are the places we could do some of these practices that are meant to be done in close proximity to each other. Meaningful spiritual relationships, spiritual growth as we discuss things with each other and learn from each other, praying, right? Because if we we have a prayer meeting at church, are you going to come? This is participatory. If we have a prayer meeting in church, are you going to come? No, you aren't. Don't lie. This is church. (laughs) If we have a prayer meeting at church, are you going to come? Yes. You don't. We have one every week. (laughs) You do? Okay, so Lynn comes. (laughs) Right? But one of the reasons why prayer is something we do in small groups is because we want you to pray for the person across the room about the prayer request that's in the room with them, that they brought, that you, who you now care about because you're spiritually growing with them and you have a meaningful spiritual relationship with them and you're praying for the same missionary and you served together last weekend and now you're going to pray for them and not for their aunt's sister's uncle's dog, but you're going to pray for them. And you're going to pray out loud and you're going to do it together because that's the way it's supposed to go and because you're not coming to the prayer meeting except for Lynn <laughs> and Kent and everybody else who drives like 50 minutes. We should just have it on the east side. As we do those practices together, 
And in the more random the small group, the better. We will begin to grow to become like Jesus because those practices engage the bodiliness of us and brings us towards the doctrines of the gospel that we believe in so that we become in line with what we believe instead of split around it and not executing on it. We talked about how we've got to be a people growing in the gospel, that the gospel is not moralism. Do this, don't do that, and we'll all gather here and and judge each other so we know who's approved of and who's not. That's not the gospel. There's no good news in that, right? But the the gospel is also not therapy. It's not, Jesus is there to make my life fabulous, and to the extent to which Jesus makes my life fabulous, I will somehow sort of acknowledge him. The gospel is something else, that Jesus died for your sins, is raised for your justification, seeks to transform, remake you in the image of God, and to make you into everything you were meant to be under his direction, his leadership, his kingship, and his loving purposes. And as you are pruned into that, you will be fruitful through it. Right? And that's something we have to constantly get back together and remember, because we are always sliding into one of the two errors. And sometimes we're even sinfully creative enough to slide into both of them at the same time. Jesus is, to make, is supposed to make my life fabulous, and I'm going to judge you, and we're not going to do this. It's our only chance at humility. It's our only chance to escape self-righteousness. It's our only chance to be happy because we don't take ourselves so seriously. It's our only chance to have any impact on the world around us. We also talked about knowing the Bible, and I know for a lot of you, especially if you've picked up one of these enormous pew Bibles that weigh 19 pounds. It's just the cost of having text big big enough you can read. But here's what you need to understand. You're not supposed to already know all of this. Right? This is is communicative relationship that God has inspired that you can plumb and explore for your whole life. You don't need to know what's in here, but you, you should wish you knew what was in here. You should want to explore what's in here. Not because if you don't read it today, God's going to be mad at you, but because God gave it to you so you could know it, so that it could strengthen you and encourage you and rebuke you, so that you could enjoy it, and so that you could understand the Jesus whom you're imitating and seeking to follow and be like. And when you have the right attitude about the Bible, you can accept the fact of how little you know about it, but how much you can gain from it. When you read it for the purpose for which it exists, it is meant to reveal God in Christ, empowered by the Spirit to those who would believe, right? And then, what's designed to make sure, okay, and then you don't have to do it by yourself. One of the things I challenged you guys at the very beginning of this week was, or these six weeks was, Consider becoming the kind of person who goes to church every week, right? At the beginning, we said, hey, come to, come to church all six weeks, right? And you're like, eh, maybe, we'll see, right? But one of the decisions everybody makes at some point as a Christian is whether they're going to just be the kind of person that goes to church every week. And that doesn't mean you never, ever miss it. What it means is you never, ever decide whether or not you're going to church. That decision has already been made. There's a point where that happens, Hopefully, if it's, you have to be challenged sometimes, but there's a point where you just go, yeah, no, we don't decide on Saturday night or Sunday morning if we're going to church. We are going to church. Therefore, we're going to go to bed on time, and we're going to lay out our things if we've got kids, and we're going to—because we go to church. That's just what we do, even if the sermon was bad last week, right? Because it's going to be most weeks, right? 
But once you're already here, if you want to know the Bible and you feel a little stuck or you, why not get together with some other people who've been reading it for years and who are leading classes and who you can really learn from? Your kids are going to do something else that they like and we're going to feed them goldfish and Pepsi. I'm just kidding, not Pepsi. (laughs) And it's going to be fine and it's a great way to just have community learn. I'd really encourage you to think about, if if you've been coming to church, go to a class. And if they're terrible, complain to me and we'll try to make them better. But they're not terrible. One of the ways Christians don't get stuck spiritually is when they do what they learn. The most critical, the easiest way to get stuck spiritually besides not caring about obeying Jesus. That's one really easy way to get stuck. You believe in Jesus and then you just don't worry about doing what he says. That's the first way people get stuck. <laughs> You'll get, you get stuck for decades there. But if you go, you know, you know, I should learn. So then you go, I'm going to learn about Jesus. And then you think you're obeying Jesus by learning about him, but you're really not. All you're doing is learning what you're supposed to believe, know, and obey. You're not actually obeying, except for like a couple commands. It's like, you should get to know what Jesus said, right? And there becomes this place where you learn, but you don't yet do. And sacrificial service and getting out and serving the city is one of the places that keeps us from getting stuck there. From learning, if you learn and you don't do, you know what you feel like you have to do? Because you're naturally going to feel like you have to do something. You're going to feel like you have to, like, tell everybody else how to live. <laughs> I mean, it's really what ends up happening, because you learn all this stuff that Jesus is telling people, and instead of doing it, you feel like you should really pass it on to people who don't seem to get it. You know? Like your wife. And that's not generally helpful. But if the first thing you do is when you see somebody else not doing it, you go, oh, I'm probably like them. And you look to yourself and you go, okay, how can I be loving? How can I not gossip? How can I do this? How can I serve others? How can I get out there? How can I put my interests aside and put somebody else's interests before mine? You're going to be a lot happier, a lot more thankful, a lot more like Jesus, a lot less judgmental, a lot more humble, and then somebody might actually listen to you or even ask your advice for how they could be more like Jesus, right? And what we did on October 18th is designed to just be all of us doing, actually doing once, what we're all supposed to be doing in our small groups at least quarterly, right? All your small group leaders are trained at least quarterly. Get get your small group together. Get on the hub, which is our electronic community where we can gather together and plan for action. And to plan for action, to go do some kind of service outside the church about once a quarter. I, I, I really am thrilled if you serve inside the church. If you're on a work team, you're serving in children's, you're a greeter, you're doing all those things. We need you to do that. That's awesome. So glad you serve the coffee. I wish everybody would do more of that. It'd be awesome. But it's very important that we very deliberately get outside of the church and serve other people that don't go here and don't want to go here. Better if they hate us. Because then you could really learn to serve and follow Jesus, right? Find some people that really don't like you and serve them, and then you'll grow, right? And so the hub exists. So here's what you—I'm going to give you permission one more time. If your small group leader does not initiate this— you get to annoy them. You get to say, you know, Frank, your small group leadership is not as interesting as you think it is. And I think we would all really benefit from actually going out and serving the city. Why don't we pick something tonight or tomorrow next week? And they'll probably say okay. 
And if not, everybody gang up on them. And if you get out there and do it, you, your, your group will get a lot closer because you grow a lot. You, you probably experienced this on the 18th, that you were like cutting onions with somebody you didn't really know all that well. And by the time you were done, you had gotten closer than three or four months in small group or three or four or five years coming to worship on Sunday morning, right? And so you, you grow a lot closer as a small group. You actually serve somebody else. You learn how to love people. You actually apply what you're learning. Do not miss out on the opportunity for service. We'll find indoor ones for winter, all seven months of it. And then the last is to reach the world. Um, the more you grow and the more we grow in faith together as a church, we will realize and embrace and accept our mandate by Jesus that every person and every generation must be told the good news. That's why we call it the gospel, right? Evangelism comes from euangelion, the good message, meaning we have to good message everybody in every generation. That's our mandate. And the more we understand who Jesus is, the more we'll embrace that. And then you'll say, but wait a second, everybody says we're arrogant. Well, Jesus said that if we said what he said, people were going to hate us. He, he said that. And they weren't just gonna, they're not just going to say, I'm mean and I hate you. They're going to come up with something that sounds really plausible by which to hate on us. That's just how it's going to be, and you're going to have to not fall for that. You either have to not be bullied into not believing what Jesus says, which happens to piles of Christians, and you also can't be mean back. We just have to be faithful back. And what that means is we'll engage in what we call evangelism or good newsing of anybody who's in our sphere of influence in a way that's humble and loving and as unannoying as possible, right? Answering the questions they're really asking, helping to lead them to, to, to good questions that they can find answers to, but then in addition to recognize that we are meant to take the message to people unlike us, to all places in the world, across language barriers, into zones of government that forbid us. If you look at our missions program, about 10% of every dollar given to High Point, not including the Where Most Needed Fund, which has a new name now that actually says that it goes to missions, because it does. And a, a lot of you give specifically to missionaries directly. The money that just comes into the general fund, 10% of that goes to, to missions. Um, seven of those missionaries of the 32 are in countries that would disinvite them if they knew exactly what they were doing. And I realize that that's politically touchy. But one of the only things in the Bible that the Bible gives Christians permission to not obey government when it is rightly instituted is in the area of whether or not we can tell people the, the life-saving and soul-saving message of the risen and crucified Savior. You, you do not have the divine authority to do whatever you want with the traffic laws. You don't. And no matter how arduous the permit process for fixing your basement is— you do not have the divine authority to not obey those laws or to not pay your taxes or to whatever. But you, you do have divine authority, and the church has divine authority in the entire globe to disobey any government that does one thing. And that is, that says, I'm king and Jesus is not, and they cannot hear about King Jesus. In the most loving way, in the most humble way possible, we are called to disobey those governments, and to bring the message of Jesus to whoever needs to hear it in every generation, in every place. And when you believe that, all the way down to your toes, when you're cut, you bleed it. 
you will care about missions. You will care about other cultures. It will well up in you a desire to go to classes about it, hear what we're doing in those places, and go to missionary luncheons, and it will bring up in you a kind of strange level of generosity so that if your friends knew what you gave to that missionary in Nambia, they would think you were extraordinarily strange. And it's beautiful. And some will even hate you for it and call you an imperialist and call you a culture destroyer and they will bully you intellectually. But you cannot decommission a commission of Jesus. And we will not. Those are the practices, the minimal practices that God has given us that we're to do them together, that we're to covenant with each other, that we're to stick with each other through thick and thin, that we're to encourage one another that this is the right direction. This is what the gospel is about. This is what Jesus has said. It doesn't matter how the culture feels about us. They're there as love objects for us, not as the people we seek our approval from. The people we love are not the people whose approval we need. If you get those two caught up with each other, you got problems. We get our approval from Jesus. We love people who hate us. And if they don't hate us, great! I mean, Jesus said, if they hate you, they hated me first. A lot of people won't hate us. They'll see how we live and they'll say, that's beautiful. And some of them will believe. And other people, it'll just make them matter. Because remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians? He says, when we go out into the world, to some people, we smell beautiful. And to some people, we smell like rotting flesh. And it says more about their nose than our life. One of the things that's, I think, really helpful to do is to remember that when we're faithful to these things, when we remember the gospel, and when we do what God has told us to do, and we focus on being faithful rather than seeing results, what happens is God really does do things. He produces fruit. When we remain in Him, when we remain connected to Him, when we do what He tells us to do, when we follow Him in faith, He actually does do things in people's lives. He changes people's lives. He redeems people. They believe in Jesus. Their lives are changed. Families are changed. Things happen, and it's beautiful. And therefore, we wanted to end the Blueprint series with baptisms. We wanted to invite people whose lives God's changed to tell us what happened and to be baptized and to take on Jesus' name and to recognize that they're part of His church, They're going to be part of his local church, and we're going to live these things together until he returns or until we're dead. So in this service, we've got six. And so listen attentively to these stories and be encouraged that God really works. So let's start with—we got five, sorry. 